Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Thank you for joining us for another episode in our third season as we continue to kind of trek along with these. Man, I don't think I've ever had as many deep thought conversations over the last few weeks as I've had here in 2024. And I know my guest today is going to continue that trend because he's a deep dude. I've been following him and watching him for, we won't say how long we've been following and watching each other. You'll get to see um, how we both look when I bring him on screen. But my good friend, Alan Sheldon, um, has dedicated his life's work to improving the odds for children and families. He has three daughters five grandchildren, as well as numerous bonus sons and daughters and grandchildren. He's trained as an, edu- as an educator. Alan has alternated between classroom service, school leadership, parenting, coaching, policy development, and advising at the local, state, and national levels. He's got a long bio, which is going to be in the bio section of our podcast if you want to learn more about him. But he's also um, started last year a daddying film festival and forum, which we're going to talk about today as well. I'm excited about that. And the reason that I'm excited about that, Alan, because I am a filmmaker and I haven't done a film in a while. And I told you this last year I was going to come in and I just got busy and I just couldn't get my head around it. But I've already elicited like three or four of my other film friends And so I'm trying to pull them together here in Atlanta to come up with some great idea that we're going to do as a collaborative project um, to submit to you. And if I don't get them to like sign on, I will be doing it by myself. So you will be getting um, something for us. But it's something that I definitely want to support. I've always wanted to do a um, daddy film festival myself, but now I don't have to because you're doing it and I can support you doing it um, and get it done the same way. But how are you doing, sir? I am flourishing, thank you. How you doing? Flourishing. That's I like that. I like I, I like that. I, I think I need to let um add that to my lexicon because someone so I, a- asked me yeah. the other day, and you can understand this. They said, "How are?" You? They said he said his his response was, "So how are you doing?" And I hesitated, and I said, "Huh?" I said, "I said I'm okay." I said, but what I've learned to do in this um, more mature season of my life is not to lie when someone asks me a question. So I won't say okay if I'm not okay. I said, but I think the biggest challenge for me is what's the definition of okay? Because my okay is different from someone else's okay. Um, yeah. My wife is doing fine. My kids are doing fine. All my bills are paid. I ain't got all those issues. If you'd have asked me 30 years ago, (laughs) that answer wouldn't have been okay. (laughs) But that's not why I'm not saying okay today. It has nothing to do with any of that stuff. It has to do with my own definition of what's okay for me. And that could change from day to day to day. So thanks for asking. I appreciate when someone asked that question, Alan. Listen, when we start our show, we start it in this way because I think it's important to kind of know people's stories. And I'll tell you why I ask the question after you answer. And I always ask the question, what's your daddy's story? Tell me your daddy's story. So before I tell you my daddy's story, I'm going to be a really, um, I don't know, hard guess because I, <laughs> I don't follow directions well. But I, I'm going to answer your question. But before I do, Kenneth, I want to tell you, I want to thank you for 20 years of service. I want to thank you um, for now your third year of doing podcasts. Uh, I listened intently to the last two and was totally uh, stimulated, uh, provoked in a wonderful way um, by your last two guests, um, Ron uh, and Rodney, uh, Mm -hmm. both 
spoke, as you just said in the introduction, but I, I want to thank you um, for what you've been doing and congratulate you on the birth of your third grandchild. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah, which is really exciting. Okay, now to answer your question about my daddy's story. Um, and you can see you and I both like to wear caps. Mine is different than yours. <laughs> There's a reason, by the way, mine is pink. And maybe we'll get to that later, later <laughs> on. Um, so I would say that as I think about my daddying story, there were three really major motivators or informants to my dadding story. My first one is my personal story. So it's not only my experience as a son and as a grandson and as a daddy and as a granddaddy now. Um, so those are the personal pieces of it. My second um, daddying, part of my daddying story is what I've learned and what I continue to learn as a professional, if you will, in the field. Mainly, it's my listening to kids um, who I describe as the consumers of daddying um, and to dads. And, you know, we can get into that about how I do that and how many I continue to listen to. And then the third is just, I think, what I was born with, which is a lifelong quest to help as many children as I possibly can navigate a world that has shaped them so they can shape it. Mm, that's awesome. I love answering that, asking that question because there's so much like wisdom in our daddy or daddying story, right? And so, and the first reason that I asked that question is to give context to who you are, right? And the second reason is so that people can find themselves in you, right? Because so many of us who are doing this daddying thing believe that our circumstance is the only circumstance and that no one else is walking a path that they are walking now. And so I like to have people lead off with that story so that people can find that the path that they're on has others who are walking the same path. So thanks um, for that. I'm also inspired often by why people do this work. I always tell the narratives of all my employees. I know the stories of all my employees, everyone who's ever worked for me. I know their daddying story. I know their daddy story. I know their personal whys. Why, Alan, why are you in this space? Why and what has driven you to really be inspired to work on behalf of dads? Well, I guess it goes back to the prior answer, frankly. So I knew in my personal life, my dad was a businessman. Um, he was a super salesman. He had his own company. And he was missing our household for 250 days a year for 25 years. Mm. So he was absent. Um, and when he was present, he was often absent. Um, and so one of the things that I learned is, A, I knew he would always be there in a pinch. I also was aware I needed more than a pinch. Mm -hmm. and I vowed, I'm sure, and I can't even tell you how early it was, but it was really, really early that when I became a father, and there was never any doubt that that was going to happen, um, when I became a father, that I would be present both physically, emotionally, spiritually, uh, and in every way I possibly could. Mm -hmm. When you talk to your children, have you ever heard them glean back on you being in their lives and show any level of appreciation, maybe in a comment, in a gesture, or something that said to you, you did the right thing. You did it the right way. Uh, probably depends what time of their lives one might ask that question. <laughs> you know, as kids, I think they were sort of, they didn't have a frame of reference or comparison. That was the way it was. Mm. That was always there. 
um, when they got to be adolescents. Maybe they were wishing that wasn't there quite, quite as much. Uh, and now, as two of the three of them are parents themselves, um, I think they have a fuller understanding and appreciation. Have they ever voiced it? Um, they do. Um, they voice it from time to time, but more it's in their actions um, that speak to me uh, and the actions of their children as well as uh, my grandchildren. So mm -hmm. I don't to tell me. Yeah. What's the difference? Cause I'm a, this is my third grandchild and I've been telling people who've asked me whether or not it's my first, um, people who are, you know, really want to kind of understand. I'll take a moment to kind of explain to them what this one means and how this one is different from the other two. Um, my oldest grandchild, Nevaeh, um, of my oldest child, uh, you know, she was my first child, which, um, to which I wasn't in her life in the beginning parts of her life. And my granddaughter's dad is also not in her life. And so we've always been in relationship under construction, right? Good, love her, we'll do anything for her. We love each other genu gen uh, genuinely. genuinely. Um, but we got that as a history. And so while I am a grandfather, I have not experienced being a grandfather like other people experience it. And that could be more my fault than, than their fault. I just don't know what that looks like. And then my second grandchild, Max, um, was birth of a daughter that I didn't find out about until 10 years ago. And so, um, and he's all the way across the country. And so I try to do the things that distant grandparents do for him, which is if I can't show up in person, I show up in the mail. And so whatever that is, whatever it needs, when I'm calling and talking to my daughter, I get to chat with him. But he's a little boy. He's not into chatting right now. It's real quick. Hey, how you doing, Pop Pop? You know, I'm, and he's often going about his business. So I'm sure that will change as he gets older. This particular granddaughter is with my child who's been intimately in my life since she came out the womb. Um, and she's actually here in Atlanta with me. So she's in proximity. She's in my day-to-day -day life. And so it feels a little different. It feels, you know, it's, I'm excited. I'm excited about all my grandchildren. But it's something different. Like I always say that, you know, I don't, you don't love your children at any level more or less. You just love them differently, right? And that's when I'm beginning and understanding in my life that is, it is always just a difference in how you love one person than another. And so I'm excited about this. And I'm also hoping that the excitement that I have about Nala will stimulate something differently in me with Max and Nevaeh so that it trickles downhill and I can create a more fuller experience of being a grandfather. Got any advice, what would it be for me, Alan? Uh, the, the advice would be a couple fold. One is be there. Um, you know, when I talk about daddying, and we can talk about how I define daddying as different than fathering, um, but when I define daddying, I've learned that the zenith the apex of being a dad is when nurturing your children is nourishing to you. Mm. When nurturing your children is nourishing to you. Um, I think there's a reason that that next generation is called grand um, because it's, it's different. Um, I remember the birth of my first grandchild uh, I was living in the greater D.C. area where I am now, and uh, she was being born in New York City. And um, I knew the day it was to happen, and I got on the train. And, of course, my mind was filled with, you know, the excitement, the anticipation, what's it going to be like, and so forth. And I had a very weird thought, which is how wonderful I'm going to become a grandfather, so I don't need to be a father anymore to that kid. Now 
you know, her mother. Now I can just focus on that. Man, was I wrong. Mm. <laughs> Man, was I wrong. Um, so that in, as far as I'm concerned, is lifelong, uh, which is good. Not every day. It's not good every day, but it's good most, most of the time. Um, but, you know, what, what I have found, and maybe the best way to, uh, to describe it, is if you look at today's blog, and I do a blog every Thursday, the Daddying blog. So the Daddying blog today refers to this, which has to do with my grandchildren. So when I was visiting my oldest granddaughter, and that story that going up on the train was 27 years ago. So she's uh, 27 years old, and um, going up to, to New York, as I said. So she is now living in Nashville, Tennessee, and she had just begun a career as a clinical social worker. And I went to visit her um, about two months ago, three months ago, I guess, and we were talking, and I told her that as a man who always worked with younger kids, mainly uh, I used to be an elementary school principal, for instance, um, people would say to me, Alan, you're a guy. You shouldn't be wearing your heart on your sleeve. Mm. That wasn't the definition of what's manly. That didn't fit the definition. So frankly, it fits my definition. Mm -hmm. So uh, I rejected that. But I was telling granddaughter Casey this story. And I said to her, so Casey, for the last year, I've been thinking they're right. I shouldn't wear my heart on my sleeve. I should roll up my sleeve and I should tattoo my heart right on my arm. <laughs> and so we spontaneously went and got matching tattoos. Wow. In East Nashville, Tennessee. And what I what we created was a, a heart and just an open heart. And we wrote on each other's, which got transferred by the tattoo artist, I-L-Y-M, which stands for I love you more. So we argue about that all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but there must have been a reason I left the heart open. And then I get home and I think, wait a minute, I have four other grandchildren. I can't kind of show favoritism by having just one of them. Mm -hmm. I ain't about to get four more tattoos, <laughs> but I can fill in that heart with something from each of them. And this really does answer, I think, help answer the question you asked me. So I said to them, it's not Yes, my heart is giant, but the size of the tattoo isn't giant. So I want you to pick one word or a symbol that we can put inside that heart that says something about our connection with each other. Mm -hmm. And two of them are boys and two of them are girls. Although I should say two of them are young men and two of them are young ladies because the youngest one is 17. Um, and then the ne next are 22, 24, and 20, um, yeah. So 17, 22, 24, 26. Um, so what they chose is important. So one of the boys said, I want to put a clock. And I said, why a clock? And he said, because of the amount of time that we get to spend with each other. Mm. And by the way, when we put the clock in, we made it say 640, which was the time he was born. Oh, wow. um, the second uh, grandson um, said, he's, he works for NASA. Um, he's a computer engineer. It's a bit of a nerd, which he embraces and loves me saying about him and him saying about himself. He said, I want to put the first law in physics of thermodynamics. And I said, Ben, you can't do that. And I, he said, why not? And I said, because then I'll have to explain it to people. And I don't have a clue what that you're talking about. <laughs> so what we came up with was a symbol, which was arrows pointing in opposite directions. 
And what that symbolized for Ben, as he explained it to me, is that when we talk together and when we spend time together, there's an equality to the sharing. So what goes in comes out, and that was his. And the two granddaughters, interestingly, picked a term of endearment that I use for each of them. So that's what came up for them. And then alongside the heart was the word I began with when you asked me, how am I doing? And my answer was flourishing. And that is something that I answer for them each time we speak. My condition, by the way, Kenneth, is that I don't think you can use that word to go back to what you said unless you mean it. And happily, I'm a chronic flourisher. So it's nice to feel that that's the way it is for me at this moment in my life. Thanks for that. That gave me some ideas. Got a lot of room on my arms. So I only have one tattoo on my entire body. I just... Um, and I did that when I was 18 years old and so much further past that. So I got to give that some thought, but that's a beautiful way of, um, expressing, um, your deep love and commitment, you know, to your grandchildren and your children, um, in a way I fully understand now what daddying means. So help us understand a little bit what fathering means and how daddying is different from fathering. So in my mind, um, and how I got into sort of focusing in this field, which now goes back actually to 1994, so it's been a long time, and somebody asked me when I stopped working directly in education, either in a school or uh, running the National Elementary School Center, somebody said, what are you doing next? And I said, I have no clue. Mm -hmm. and said, well, we just spoke to your three daughters who were in their early 20s, and the way they speak about you, you need to write a book on fathering. What could be more flattering than that? And because I'm a smartass, my response was, fathering isn't a book. What do you mean? Fathering is a one-time biological act requiring zero commitment, just a shot of DNA, and I can write about that in a paragraph if you'd like. I don't criticize for that offering an alternative. So my alternative was to spontaneously come up with the word daddying, which is where fatherhood and nurturing intersect. And that's a lifelong process. That's not a one-time biological act. So that for me is the difference. And it refers uh, to, um, you know, it has both a, a, a public and a private aspect in in my mind. Um, So it's a lifelong commitment to your child's physical, emotional, social, intellectual, creative, moral, spiritual well-being. And it's the place where fatherhood and nurturing converge. And it's an ongoing process. Um, The term connotes connection, nurturing, emotional involvement, support, advocacy, protection, um, and informality. Um, Of course, you and I know, because we've been doing this for a long time, that research shows us that when dads are positively involved in their children's lives, all measures of well-being go up. Mm -hmm. And the opposite is also true. Right. What probably hasn't been spoken about enough, as far as I'm concerned, is we know about the positive impact on children. We don't speak enough about, although we're beginning to, what are the positive impacts on the dad? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. They're manifold, right? Mm-hmm. They're plentiful. Um, it's why I mentioned that for me, the apex and the zenith of daddying is when nur- nurturing your child is nourishing to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's part of wearing your heart on your sleeve, I guess, or that doing it on your arm, um, that you allow yourself to feel that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you, um, one of the things that whole tell me your daddy story, you know, for some of my guests starts out with 
a hesitation in them because no one has ever asked them that story before. And many of them will push through and, 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 and have an awakening um, because I've asked the story, I've asked the question. Um, you know, but it, it's something about understanding that particular story and understanding what you just said about daddying that gives them the ability to kind of step back and understand that there is this one thing that happens, which is fathering, and then there's another thing that happens, which is daddy. And you have to figure out how those two things sit in perspective, because if you think about it in totality with respect to your father, um, he also is a product of both fathering and daddy. And he got one of the same things you got, which was fathering. But his daddying could have been similar to yours, worse than yours, or at least different than yours. And if you don't ask those questions, you can always be seeking um, and vilifying him because of the fathering piece without giving some level of understanding to the daddying piece. So thanks for that. That um, kind of solidifies and clarifies the importance of asking that question. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things I'm thinking about, Ken, is that um, you, you talked about some, some people stop in their tracks when you ask them to tell you a daddying story. Sorry about that phone ringing in the background there. Um, but one of the things I have found, and I'm interested as to whether or not you find the same thing. So I've now done 205 one-on-one -on -one daddying interviews. Mm. Uh, ads from 20 different countries ranging in age from 16 to 104. Um, every ethnic group, every socioeconomic group, every religious group imaginable. When I do the interviews and I have a protocol of questions that I ask and I do the interview wherever a dad will give me at least an hour of his time in a quiet place where we're not going to have any interruptions. That's mm. sort of requirement. Um, if I do the interview uh, at home, at his home, um, which happens in about a quarter to a third of, of the cases, and there happens to be a partner around, she might say to me, as I've heard often, how long is this going to take? <laughs> and my answer is, um, there isn't a set time because it depends on the depth of the answers uh, that I get. I'm sure it's the same for you on, on this podcast. Um, so I have often, unfortunately, gotten a rolling of the eye of, yeah, well, you'll be done in 10 minutes because if you get anything out of that guy, you're going to be lucky. Mm -hmm. um, the average length of time is an hour and a half. I've had interviews that have gone for four hours. Mm -hmm. um, and what I found is it's like taking your finger out of an emotional dike. And that once you start talking mm -hmm. and once you start hearing your answers to the questions in depth, you don't want to stop. Right. You just don't want to stop. You want to keep going. Right. And so two of us listen to the daddying stories. Mm -hmm. So right. that, that's something but, that you know, the responsibility of the interviewer um, is that you understand in your questioning when you have opened up a wound that you also have to have time to allow it to close, right? And that may take some time. And so when you're talking on very sensitive subjects like fatherhood, right? Because fatherhood has a way of triggering all kinds of things and all kinds of people for all kinds of reasons. Um, you have to have the patience and I, you know, I'm glad you said that because it also explains sometimes even when I'm doing this podcast, my clock is like, all right, 45 minutes. And I'm kind of like, I, you know, I want to be trailing out. But when you get somebody who has found an opening and they're trying to explore their opening, the last thing I'm going to do is shut that down, you know, for the sake of likes, clicks and comments, that's not going to happen. And if you're really interested in that man's story or that woman's story in some cases has been, 
you're going to take some time and kind of listen to that process because it's important to understand that. But what that then lends me, lead me into, before I get to the film stuff, because I want to talk about the storytelling component of what we're talking about, the importance of that storytelling component. But I want to touch on this term because you did say it, and I don't want to gloss over that term because I want people to lean on this, and I want you to explain what it means. And that is advocacy. Yeah. So there's public and private advocacy as, as far as I'm concerned. Um, it's interesting, and I mentioned there's a reason that I, my hat that says daddying is in pink. So I happened to come up with this word spontaneously, dadvocacy, daddying I had spoken about earlier, but I came up with this word. I do have done a lot of work in New Mexico, and I was flying from New Mexico uh, back to the Baltimore area, and usually when I'm on a plane, especially on a flight that might be as long as that one was, which is a little over four hours, I love having just to be by myself. And I don't usually speak to anybody on a plane. I'm either reading or writing or just thinking. And I happened to just have this word come to me as I was flying. And I was sitting next to a young woman who was reading a book on gender studies. And so I turned to her and asked if it was okay if I interrupted uh, her reading and asked her a question. And she said, yes. And I said, so I couldn't help but notice you're reading a book on gender issues and gender studies. And I've come up with this word and I'd love to know what your association, immediate association is when I say the word advocacy. And she didn't really think for more than a couple of seconds. And she said, it must be against women. And it really silenced me. And I said to her, your answer makes me really sad. She was in her 20s. I am not in my 20s. Um, and um, she said, why? And I said, so why if you're four? Something in your mind is it against something else? As a matter of fact, if you really for helping dads become the dads they want to be, it's helpful to women. It's not against them. It's for children and it's for families. So it acknowledges the vital role of fathers and mothers alike. It asserts that families and communities are better off when fathers and children are positively involved in each other's life. It includes an active lifelong commitment, as I said earlier, to the physical, emotional, social, etc., um, and spiritual well-being of children. And it takes deliberate actions like you have been doing, Kenneth, for 20 years, uh, and I have been doing for around the same amount of time, takes deliberate actions and helps develop policies to support, encourage, and optimize opportunities for fathers, grandfathers, and other father figures to be positively engaged in children's lives and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So the father figure part is very important to me. So, you know, there, you and I know how many father figures there are out there. Mm -hmm. We actually just have, and you taking me down or taking me down a path. I'm gonna dip in, and then I'm gonna dip out because it could be a 30 minute conversation. I'm actually on a committee, and we were <clears throat> discussing um, the name that they were proposing for the committee, uh, which included the term male engagement. And I have a visceral reaction to that word associated with fatherhood because of the work I do. Um, and that every time that term is um, injected into fatherhood work, the fatherhood work becomes diluted and the direction of the original intention um, is diverted. And the work becomes more about mentoring than it does youth, than it does about helping men. And so we were talking about this whole notion in conversation of father figures and I said it has been my experience that men 
who who serve as quote unquote father figures in a healthy way understand one principal point and that is while they can compensate for the absence of the father they can't replace and so they understand when they have to show up in that role but they don't show up in replacement of that role they show up in compensation for that role because they too understand that that hole that was left in the heart of that child by a father who didn't show up be always available for him to show up and another man should never stand inside of a man's hole right us in in that footstep and so i ended it by i get it i i, I get wanting to Championing dads who compensate. They should be compensated. They should be revered. They should be. But what we know about the actual work itself, and for the ones out there who are struggling to get into that space, it challenges the infrastructure and our ability to lean in. What do you think about that? Yeah, um, it, it, it's difficult. One of the things that really has um, puzzled me for years and years uh, is dads who have not been active in the lives of their children or have been negatively active in the lives of their children, that despite that, there is this desperate quest, need, striving to have that father in their lives in a positive way. how many people have said, because one of the questions I ask in my dadding interviews is, did your father ever tell you he loved you? Mm-hmm. And more often than not, especially fathers who are 50 or older, say to me, you know, he never said that to me, but I knew he did. Mm-hmm. Because in those days, dads didn't say those kind of things. Right. Um so yes, I, I, I haven't really thought about it in the same way you've just expressed it about taking the role. No, but they are playing a fatherly role and they are playing a dadding role. And it shouldn't, I agree with you, it shouldn't be uh, instead of, you know, one of the things that keeps me motivated and I still do occasional dadding interviews and I still do occasional groups. Um, but when I was doing one of my early focus groups, it was with 10 year old boys in, in Baltimore. I never had met any of these kids before. So mm-hmm. principal arranged that I went into the school, parents permission, and I met with, um, seven 10 year old boys for about an hour talking about daddy and asking them if they could create the most excellent dad, what would be the qualities they would he would have and we got all finished and it was a little less than an hour and we're walking out of the classroom and into the hallway and Rodney pulls on my sleeve I'd never seen Rodney before um, he's black I'm white mm-hmm. and he tugs on my sleeve and he says mister would you please be my daddy mm. Wow and it broke my heart um, and what it reminded me of is, is the need, the, the incredible need to have a daddy uh, in your life. And so, no, it doesn't take the place of, um, but to, in the child's mind, in some ways, it does take the place of. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I yeah you're that, right. I never thought about it from that vantage point to this. Yeah, it, he can't be replaced, but the child doesn't know. He needs it to be replaced and doesn't understand the difference between compensating and replacement. He just needs it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Just needs it. Wow. Didn't think about it from that vantage point. Okay. Gave me a lot to, gave me some more now. I got to think about (laughs) out there because listen, like you said, 20 years, you said you started out early in the conversation, said that you started this stuff in 1994, sir, that's 30 years. You've been in this game for 30 years. Embrace that brother. You've done this a lot longer than I've done that. And 
you've done it at a time when talking about dads was not something that from a public perspective, anybody wanted to talk about at all. I mean, I started in 2004 and I know how hard it was in 2004, so I can only imagine how hard it was talking about men and talking about dads in 1994. We now, that's a whole nother show, going back to what that struggle was. But this conversation that we're having then lends, leads into where I wanted to go about this whole narrative, story storytelling narrative, and the importance of talking about this stuff in the public space so that people can see stories and find themselves in the story and hopefully find solutions to what they're dealing with answers to what they're dealing with or anything that they're looking for that they're dealing with. And you are a storyteller. You love storytelling. Why is it important to tell stories? Uh, why is it important? Because that's what our lives are made of. It's our stories. Um, and, you know, the other day I was driving home from a meeting and with the Stadding Film Festival, there were so many balls in the air and so many details uh, to work out uh, and make it happen. And I was a little worried for a minute that I had forgotten about why I was doing it in the first place mm -hmm. uh, because I was so involved and I got to make this call, I got to get this group, I got to get more films sent in. And I thought, no, you, you got to remind yourself why you're doing it. And here, here's what I came up with. There are way too many daughters and sons whose experiences with their fathers have been non-existent or disappointing at best. And there are way too many fathers whose opportunities to be daddies have been handicapped, limited, or diminished by their own experiences as sons, their circumstances or social forces that create unnecessary hurdles. By letting those most directly impacted tell their stories and name and express their feelings, we can shine a spotlight on their joys and or their pains and thus improve the odds for sons, daughters, fathers, mothers, families and communities mm. so it's hard sometimes to sort of come to the essence of of something when you're distracted by so many things that need to get done i know you understand that better than most <laughs> um, so i for me that's the reason and the fact that this idea for the film festival actually came to me 20 years ago but i only started it uh, in 2022, so it's still quite new. Mm -hmm. The first uh, version as a virtual uh, festival only, and last year we added a forum part of life piece of it, um, and it is evolving, um, and will will continue to evolve. When I started it, I knew nothing about film festivals, and you know I don't pretend to know stuff I don't know. But I did know somebody knew a little bit about it. So I called her and asked if she would work on it with me. And so that very first year, it was just virtual. And it was called the Kids First Daddying Film Festival. And it was kids making videos um, up to seven minutes long. Uh, and when I say kids, it's elementary school, middle school, high school, and undergraduate college. It doesn't require fancy equipment, as I tell all of us and remind all of us. We have a production studio in our pocket. We call it a smartphone. And most of us are making these things all the time. So we're not looking for something you've done, you know, for a million dollars with a high production quality. And then what's really important is that when the films come in, they are judged by other children the same age mm -hmm. um, and then they're narrowed down to 10 semi-finalists in each of those four categories of elementary middle high school and undergraduate college when there were 10 semi-finalists 
we send them to people in the entertainment field and or the education field. And they narrow it down to five finalists. Each finalist earns $250. Um, those finalists are put online for a week and the public gets to vote. And the winning film in each of those categories earns another $250. They don't earn a Golden Globe. They don't earn uh, a uh, Oscar. They don't earn an Emmy. They earn an Atticus. And it's named after Atticus Finch, who most people believe to be one of the finest representations of a father or father figure in either literature or movie. And the award is literally a mockingbird that is mounted on a pedestal. Um, last year, and in that first year, we received film from 17 countries, which blew me away. Mm -hmm. uh, last year, we received films from 21 countries. Um, and what we did last year when we added a live forum, which we did in Albuquerque and Santa Fe, we did the same thing in both cities one day apart. Um, we showed the winning films, and then we break into small discussion groups between children and adults about the issues that came up in the film mm -hmm. about those stories. Cause that's what it's about. We're not a film festival that uses that as, as its metric, the same as most film festivals, which is how many films did you show over how many days and how many different venues? That's not important. Right. Uh, to us in, in terms of what we're looking for. So this year, the festival will be in Philadelphia. The original idea was to move it from state to state to also shine a spotlight on um, the film industry in a given state. But what I discovered last year, and I've done a lot of work in New Mexico, so I already had a sense of it. Uh, what I realized last year, what we realized last year in terms of those working on this was it means we have to create a brand new network every year in a new city or state. We need to learn the culture of that particular state uh, or locality. And that just doesn't make any sense. Um, so we were invited to bring it to Pennsylvania. Um, and that happily is only a two and a half or three hour drive from me as opposed to a four and a half hour flight to New Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it feels local. And so on the 17th of May, as you can see on the poster behind me, on the 17th of May, we will for half a day convert the city of brotherly love to the city of fatherly love. <laughs> and I will, I just wrote it in my, I had it down somewhere before, but it is now in the book. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a partner. Um, and I want to be more than a partner. I actually want to help because it's one of my, like I said, I had this idea like you had it. I just couldn't get to doing it. But now that you are, I don't have to get to doing it. Now I can get to helping, watching it flourish. And that means helping getting the word out. That means pressing people to get films in, getting more people to know about it, using our platforms in that way and creating, because there are so many people, Alan, that send me emails about, films that they've done. The problem with many of those films are they are long form. And so uh, folks will have to go in and get them cut down to the 10 minutes that you guys are looking for. No, because no, because this year and last year, I should have mentioned, we also opened it to fathers and independent filmmakers to send films. So it wasn't only okay. films submitted by kids. And we have a category of full length feature film. Okay. So, so if they want to do that and last year we had a wonderful film submitted by a dad that was a feature film which i highly recommend and on our website we have an archive of the films that won mm -hmm. so if you want to look at it and the other thing we're adding and it'd be good to get your input on this kenneth because one of the things that we want to do this year is we're working at the moment on a content analysis of the films. What are the topics that come up over and over again? Mm -hmm. As I said, it came from 21 countries last mm -hmm. year. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of stuff uh, coming in and a lot of similarities in what the main themes are that are being presented. But one of the things that we are planning to do is curate 
a selection of films that can be used by other fathers groups when they have like an annual conference or an annual convention or they want to have a special meeting and they can show these films as a way to open up dialogue and discussion and get things going mm-hmm. around that. So that that's a new thing that's constantly evolving. I think I know a little bit about film festivals now. Next year, I'm going to look back and say, buddy, you thought you knew something, didn't you? Mm-hmm. What? You didn't know very much at all. <laughs> yeah, no, they are beasts. I've, I've been involved in doing two of them, and I'm like, no, that's, that's just, it's too much for me. Um, the other two things is, you know, interestingly enough, we did, I did a film like right before I came to Atlanta um, called um, Dark Hearts. And it was a um, something that I've always wanted to do in my life. And I actually did them both in the same film. Um, I've always wanted to do a black and white film. And I've always wanted to do a silent film. And Dark Hearts is both silent and in black and white. Wow. Now, awesome. the interesting thing about this thing is we created, we had just done... Um, I had just done, Spitting was done long before that, but I had just, my daughter and I had just come from Africa and I actually documented her journey in Africa and I did a documentary called Queen's Discovery. Well, at the time I was good friends, we still are, I just haven't spoken to him in years, with Tavis Smiley who was on PBS. And I had sent him a link or something to look at. And he's like, man, this is really good. Send me the, send me the, the film. It's like 20 minutes. I sent it to him. And he flew me and my daughter. They flew me and my daughter out to California. They interviewed her on, a, on PBS. Um, and then they had a, a women's film festival like some months later. And they called and they wanted to run the film on PBS for like a week. It ran for like a week. Now wow. it periodically like runs every once in a while. Like I get a phone call, yeah, I saw a single on, you know, PBS. I'm like, they must still be running, you know, that, docu- that documentary cool. about her journey. Fast forward, we create this thing called Dark Hearts. And because we are now in IMB, IDBM, and now we're in the space, we're in all that stuff, we created and I put it in there. I get this phone call from BET at the time. And they looked at it and they said, this is really great. Have you distributed it yet? And I said, no, we just really kind of putting the last touches on it, ready for it to go. So they put the film under, under contract because they wanted to show it on BET because they were going to do a film festival on BET. Locked it up, couldn't do anything with it. And then like several months later, <clears throat> we got a mail saying, okay, we scratched that project. We're not doing it anymore. And it took me out of my stride. And so I never did anything with it. It just kind of like is there. It never got the breath that everything else did. And I've been searching for a way to get that thing. So you will see that. It's 20. You will, you will, you will get that um, in, in submission. But um, I want to encourage my, my, my um, nephew who did an internship and do- he did a documentary internship this summer. Uh, so I want to get his skills moving. And my son is now in the second year in high school taking both photography and film. And so they both have this like youth eye. My, my son is 15, my nephew is 16. And I really want them to come up with a storyline to do something around fatherhood from a young boy's perspective. And so um, I will be pulling them together to do something. So the, the other thing that both of them can can do so we are always looking for more judges and uh, okay. the kids so the kids the same age mm-hmm. as they fall right mm-hmm. into that high school mm-hmm. uh, age group mm-hmm. and so what i do is a uh 15 20 minute zoom call with them okay that kind of trains them as judges they're not film reviewers they're okay. judges okay so it's mainly filling out a form they may need to write a couple of sentences and they need to commit to, to screening three films a month, okay. January, February, and March. Okay. That's it. That's their commitment. Often schools give them service hours, credits for doing this mm-hmm. um, as well. Okay. So, and so are we coming uh, kind of towards the end because I have an idea I want to share with you. Mm-hmm. I got, I'm going to, we got about five more minutes, but I also want to share with you that we are also 
in the beginning stages of planning um, the national conference for the um, clearinghouse, which will take place in August here in Atlanta. And so I wanna give some thought to thinking about how we might take the winners from the your film from your festival and actually show them in some kind of mini film festival at the conference in the evening where people could give them, if they don't have anywhere to go or anything to do to come and see those film. We just, I gotta think about it. I gotta walk it through. I gotta talk to our logistics people and then talk to the OFA folks to see if they're willing you know, to do it. I think it would be a great addition to a national conference for people to see five films, you know, that you know, won a film festival specifically on fatherhood. Yeah, no, that's great. Thanks. That's just the idea. So now your idea, you want to talk about it off or on camera? Uh, I want to begin with it on camera. Okay. Okay. So start on and then I'll close it and then we'll finish off. Okay. So it builds on uh, something that I've been thinking about for a long time and definitely was brought back to the surface after I listened to you and, and Ron Mincy mm. uh, about this. So uh your beard is still got some uh black in it mine is all white at this point okay. i'm old uh and i've been at it for a long time i don't know how old ron is he's been around at least as long as i have he's old too mm. so one of the things that concerns me is what happens to the field when we ain't here anymore mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's not okay with me is to not continue the momentum because the field is so dramatically different. Yes. As you said, you can only imagine what it was like in 1994. Mm -hmm. you know, like, Alan, you're nuts. You're really talking about this stuff? Mm -hmm. You're nuts. Um, so the idea is to actually bring a bunch of the old timers together to have each of us identify a youngin <laughs> and bring them together and spend as much of a retreat as we need to, a day, a night, I mean, not just an hour, mm -hmm. but at least a full day and night and maybe a weekend uh, and figure this out in a way that continues the momentum because as I look back at 30 years of work, it is such a different space now. It's um, in 2009, I wrote a piece right after Obama came in called The Daddying Movement, an inadvertent revolution. Mm. Um, and amazingly, it was printed in the New York Times uh, news service and somebody in the White House read it and asked me to come in and share ideas with the administration on how to create a fatherhood movement. And I said, but wait a minute, it wasn't the title of the article you read, The Daddying Movement? Mm -hmm. so you don't need to create one, mm -hmm. it exists. So mm -hmm. I think maybe the right question is how do we lead such a movement? Wow. And some of the work that you've done with the Clearinghouse and, mm -hmm. and so forth. So the movement exists in a very different way than it used to. Um, it's still more present individually than it is sort of as a global uh, understanding of it. But when I started, I could have told you the name of the three groups that had anything to do with fatherhood. <laughs> yeah. Now there's one around every corner, right? Uh, which is wonderful. Um, but it would be really important to think of a way and the movement, um, as I called it, and I wouldn't call it an inadvertent revolution anymore. I'd call it an evolution rather than a revolution. Okay. Because I don't think it has been uh, a revolution, but it, it's definitely been an evolution. So how do we keep it going? Um, is there some strategic way um, that we can assure that there that this momentum continues so it's not dependent upon personalities, um, but it's really becomes more organic. Um, so that's what I'd love to do some further brainstorming with you, maybe Ron, maybe a couple of other people, both of us could come up with a handful of names of people who we think are 
thoughtful about this and i think you know my first thought was we all get together my second thought which is better i think is to identify a younger person to have part of this discussion um there are some folks that have been having this conversation um more intensely recently and so uh, several several of us in separate conversations have been talking about what's the best way to do that and so i'm giving it some i am giving it some thought and it is a convening somewhere over a couple of days um to structuralize and i think that there is a there is also a level of analyzing that we have to do as well and when i say a level of analyzing is we have to analyze the infrastructure of the responsible fatherhood work, right? Because I challenge the word movement. I have always challenged the word movement in the sense that um, this, the one of the most singular um, definitions of a movement is when everybody is moving in the right direction for the same goal. And my question has always been with the responsible fatherhood work is all are all of us moving for the same goal, right? We could be moving in different ways. We could be doing different things. We can be in different lanes. But when I think about movements, I think about the civil rights movement. I think about the women's movement. I think about movements that were doing different things, but they were all headed in the same direction. I'm not always sure that the responsible fatherhood field is moving in the same direction. And so I've always hesitated yeah. by calling it a movement and just calling it a body of work. And the other thing about movements is that most movements are, to your point about the importance of getting people together, has some level of infrastructure around it. And that's something that the responsible fatherhood field doesn't have. We don't have any infrastructure around the field itself. And so, you know, it's why you know, my concern heightened, you know, when we lost um, Halbert Sullivan and when we lost Miss um, Howell out in California and when we lost um, Bernstein, I can't remember her first name. She was a researcher. And we're starting to lose people. <clears throat> and my fear is what happens to the work of that individual when that person passes and there's no infrastructure to grab it. <clears throat> and so, which is why I created the Monahan Institute for Fatherhood Research and Policy, um, to be a mechanism of housing the research that is taking place around the country. Now, the Monahan Institute is focused on uh, black fathers and their families, but more broadly, it is about the field of responsible fatherhood. How do we pull in all of the research and all of the thought leaders? To be honest with you, Alan, this podcast is part of that. Part of why I started doing this is because I was like, you know what? The right podcast could serve as a auditory repository of fatherhood people in the space. So this one hour episode that we've just done and your explanation of how you think daddying is different from fathering, it's now part of the archive. My conversation with Mincy is part of the archive. My conversation with Dr. Pearson is part of the archive. My conversation with everyone becomes part of the archive. And so people can go back and not just think about what people were thinking about their space in the place, but could actually hear you say exactly what you meant by what you meant, right? And not have to worry about that. And so in a weird way, I can see how God has like continued to like press me in this space because I'm starting to think about it in that way. But then the question is now, where is it housed, right? And then who is looking after this thing that I'm concocting after I'm gone? What does it look like after? Because I'm just as vulnerable to my stuff being lost as anybody else, right? And so I don't know what you thought about that, but we should probably talk more about that subject matter until we come up with a solution to at least begin the journey. Yeah, and, and that's why I'm suggesting that we also identify a younger person in the field uh, so it's not, you know, getting their input too. How do they keep the momentum going? It's it's like passing the torch 
right. if you will. Um, and we, we need to do it because that torch needs to continue to burn even right. brighter. Uh, because as we're dealing in a world we're dealing with, boy, is it important um, what each one of us does in our own right. space. Right. We, we, we're not going to stop the war, unfortunately, anywhere. Um, but we can create our own really important, you know, sort of, I don't know what, how to say it articulately, but, you know, that what each one of us does in our own homes, in our own space, is increasingly more mm -hmm. important as craziness that we have no control over. Absolutely. So thank you so much. I appreciate um, you in ways that you can't imagine uh, for stimulating this conversation. Um, the event is May 17th, the Daddying Film Festival and Farm in what will be described during the time that is there as the city of fatherly love, not the city of brotherly love. Um, you can find out more information at www.daddyingfilmfestival.com. Right? Did I get that right? Daddyingfilmfest.com is how, what the website is. But yes, it is the it's shorter. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, make sure you get your submissions in. I will be helping um, and assisting and kind of complimenting you and moving stuff out there to, to ship people your way. To my I Am Dad podcast listeners, thank you so much for joining us today. My guest, Alan Shetland, um, awesome individual. Please make sure that you uh, push this information forward. To all my listeners, you know how I like to leave you. Always be kind to others as you're kind to yourself, or you might find yourself by yourself. Always shoot high for your goals, because even if you miss, you'll be amongst the stars. And as my good friend and mentor, Arthur Mitchell, always said to me, it's nice to be important, but you know what? It's more important to be nice. Till next Sunday. Peace out. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. You've been listening to I Am Dad Podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time. I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things because of this reminder. I will always understand that I am dad, period.